0: Hey everyone. Today is part two of the ArtProf Landscapes Curriculum. If you are looking to strengthen and flex your art muscle, ArtProf is the community for you. We have tutorials, critiques, and more, and it's all for free. Clara, would you like to get us started? Yes. Check
1: out part one of our Landscapes Curriculum, which talked about the various skills you need to work on landscapes. And what we're going to talk about today is the various formats that landscapes can come in. Because Alex, I think when people hear landscape within an art context, something like this comes to mind. An oil painting that's supposed to be in an art museum. Alex, why do you think that's our first thought?
2: I'm totally a victim of that. Still, when I think landscape, I think a gilded frame, probably some mountains, a nice sunset in a museum by someone I don't really know. And you have these concepts where they can be allegorical or representative of greater ideas. But for modern eyes, they come off as a little boring.
1: I mean, this one's not as boring, but some of
0: them are seen as
1: a little bit archaic for mm-hmm. a contemporary audience which is why we're going to talk about everything from game design to children's books ceramics murals and textiles because i think actually one of the places that landscape is extremely prominent visually and in terms of the way it's done is minecraft why is that deep d
0: minecraft is so fun i've played it like very little so i don't know about it much as a game but The Minecraft aesthetic has become such an iconic visual and it's not just like the character design. They've really, really incorporated this like blocky, pixelated aesthetic into their landscapes and created a whole Minecraft world. And I think it's actually so fun Um, and in a way really beautiful. Like I, I don't know if this is something that I would have appreciated very much, but now after like spending time researching it, it's a really cool aesthetic. Well,
1: how is it that different than a lot of the atmospheric perspective, the lighting that's happening, and this Thomas Cole piece? The principles are pretty much the same, even though the format is very different. Now, there's such a range of video games that are out there. I really like this game Journey because it does have such a minimal landscape compared to Minecraft, which is so over the top. And then there's also concept art that gets created for game design. That's a whole universe in itself. And then Animal Crossing. (laughs) Alex, tell us about Animal Crossing and the landscapes, because again, it's not just a visual. It is part of the game.
2: Absolutely. And I was one of those who used Animal Crossing, not Stardew Valley, to get through the pandemic. And What I loved most is that community of people who might not be artists, but were proud of crafting their own landscape designs in it. And it's really cool. Clara, you asked the question perfectly. What makes these different than those old Thomas Cole traditional landscapes? They're all using the same elements of focal points and perspective. It's just a different tool to convey it.
1: Now let's go way back to manuscripts. And they are all over the world. There are tons and tons of scrolls that were done in China. We have an example here from the 12th and 13th century. And I honestly find some of these manuscript landscapes kind of hilarious because they're really wonky. They don't really make a lot of sense spatially. And
0: Deepthi, why does that still count as a
1: landscape even though they're so weird?
0: Well, I think the basic principles of like depth and focal point and like well for me when I think of landscapes a lot of it has to do with the interaction between like nature and man-made things. Sometimes it's just nature, but here it's really about like the land and how these figures are interacting with the land and what they um you know, what that importance is. So it definitely still counts as a landscape. You're learning about also the, like, regional terrain there, like what kind of, um, I love that in these, you can kind of tell what grows there and and what it's like to actually exist there. That's really cool.
1: Well, what's funny is that sometimes you can look at a manuscript like this and go, oh, those trees, they're so stylized. But Alex, I went to certain places, I'm like, they look just like that. That's exactly (laughs) these posters. Like, they're actually not as quote, fantastical, as you might think. And I think that's one thing I've always appreciated about landscape, Alex, is that it does teach you about the world. Have you seen that yourself?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I have a lot of love for old medieval manuscripts, and it's interesting how so many of them (laughs) portray ancient Jerusalem as looking just like the Italian countryside. (laughs) They capture the landscape that they know. And even if it is stylized, it Emulates it very well.
1: Tell us in the chat is there a particular landscape you have seen in real life that really stuck with you for one reason or another? Because I was never that really into mountains, but when I moved to Utah, the mountains are with you everywhere, no matter where you are in the city they're always there and they change every day. And I really pay attention to it. I never did that in Massachusetts. So it's really fun to think about that experience.
2: You've gone full John. Let's genre. talk about
1: <laughs> illustration. And illustration is a huge field. Look at our illustration curriculum to figure out why. And Dee, these are so fascinating because in a lot of ways, the figure almost merges with the background, like here with the figure. What's your take on that?
0: Yeah, these are really exciting because sometimes I see landscapes more as like a environment that people are existing in. But this, these images, the landscape is really integrated with the person. Um, like you said, it's almost as if the person is a part of the landscape, not just a character or figure. Um, it's really part of that landscape itself.
1: And Arthur Rackham, he knows how to establish a mood. And I think, Alex, a lot of that has to do with the landscape. Why do you think here this feels dark and foreboding?
2: I mean, he captures so perfectly that feeling of being lost in those woods and exploring it. It's funny to talk about this in the terms of landscape because Rackham's such a good example that we'd bring up in figurative paintings of, you need to include a background, you need to make the figure fit into it. And Rackham doesn't separate those two. He didn't make this figure and then decide, "Eh, I should probably put a background in there. (laughs) This was all part of that.
1: We have Nahum who says, rivers and banks when I lived in Hungary, hills and forests in my home country, Nigeria. Jennifer says, I went camping in the forest outside of Portland. The trees are huge. And this is cool. Lisa says, I watched highway construction for five years. Love the cranes and heavy equipment. It's been fascinating. It's been fascinating landscapes. Yeah. I take note of the landscape wherever I go because it does change so dramatically. And we do have some artists who, let's just say they've got their routine down. <laughs> for example, Deep D, we have this illustrator, Kent Davis, and the dude knows his routine. Would you say so?
0: Yeah, it's actually kind of funny. I feel like I can imagine Kent Davis painting all of these almost like Bob Ross. Like I feel like he has the, he has the like motions down, like the beautiful uh, clouds and the saturated colors and just the mood and emotion. Uh, very different than the previous artist, for sure.
1: And I love these posters, Works Proge- the Works Projects Administration posters. Mm-hmm. These were commissioned by the government in the 1930s, and they were meant to encourage people to travel the terrain. And these are so different, Alex, because we looked at Thomas Cole and all the shading and luscious stuff, and these are super graphic. Why yeah. do you think these are still compelling even though there's no shading?
2: It's so incredible because it's really just cutting out all the things you don't need, quote unquote. And not to say things like Thomas Cole, where it's super saturated with detail if the dude came in with a magnifying glass and a tiny brush, but it's almost like the artists were looking at these and thinking, how can I convey the depths of the Grand Canyon with as few marks as possible, with as few colors as possible?
1: that's a challenge in itself i mean trying to draw the grand canyon within this little poster feels a little bit lame and i confess that when i went to bryce canyon the landscape was just so tremendous i was like i give up i'm not drawing this (laughs) let's just walk around for the day that's good enough i'll go and i'll draw something else and that's fine not everybody's a landscape artist Deep, deep landscape is something I know you have definitely done in animation, like that music video you did. Does landscape interest you as an artist or is it more an accessory?
0: I think it definitely interests me, especially the way that you can like create your own fantastical landscapes because of things we've talked about, just like how nature is so interesting, but it's so vast and spaces are so interesting. Everywhere you go, even in the comments, people are saying how different regions have so many different aesthetics to it. So it can be really exciting for me with landscapes to see how I can merge different aesthetics and make my own like fantastical alien landscapes. I think that's what's really exciting to me. But I'm with you on the sense that sometimes I see a landscape in real life and I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is too much. (laughs) 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 Neil
1: says, have to remind myself that landscapes aren't just realistic. I need to push myself to experiment with abstraction and style. Well, Alex, why do you think sometimes there is a pressure that, oh, it's got to look real, otherwise it's not a legitimate landscape?
2: I think that's because of what we were talking about at the very beginning. We all have this idea of what a landscape is. It's gotta be that mountain and real articulated trees and it goes off into space. And really, I think that can be an element of landscapes you include, but it's all about how you as an artist translate it into your own style.
1: Let's talk about children's books and tell us in the chat, what is your favorite children's book? Because I think everybody has one or many in that case. And I picked William Steig because his work is very expressionistic. It's not that rendered. But I just love this jungle. <laughs> like <laughs> deep, deep. I mean, I hope you like this. This is awesome. What do you think is cool about this landscape, Deep Deep?
0: Oh, I love how it's playing with scale so interestingly. And just shape and pattern. It feels really like it gives that kind of like childish, mystical... Um, feeling to it that you find in children's books like it plays with shape and color in a way that like you only find in in children's books which is so fun
1: and this was one of your picks alex eliza wheeler tell us about Mm -hmm. her work
2: this book is incredible it's very much in the vein of oh the places you'll go um but just the joy of making the landscape and i think that's important here for a children's book audience because that landscape represents to the child the whole world that's out there to explore. And it captures the vastness without it being intimidating, which I think is very impressive.
1: Well, this is a great point from Ginger Cell, who says, I feel like if you're good at landscapes, you can really create a whole world. Which in a children's book, in an animation or a film film, If you can't create a world, you're not gonna really have much of a movie there. And that's a huge part of that. This is my pick. This is Leo Mm. and Diane Dillon. And their work, it just, it doesn't fit any of the contemporary illustration. It's so different.
0: And I just
1: love how elegant it is. And Deepti, I love the sequence, how we go through the seasons depicting it more as a dream sequence.
0: Yeah, it's really exciting to use landscape as a way of showing time and progression of time. I think that's so smart and such a clear way of doing that. Um, But yeah, it kind of reminds me of like manuscripts and mythology, like it has has a very familiar aesthetic to it, but also very specific and unusual, which I really appreciate.
1: This is one of my favorite books from my Mm. childhood. And this is sort of similar to the WPA posters in that it is quite graphic looking, but oh my goodness, the negative space, the organization of the shapes moving back into the distance. I think their work is just brilliant. And if you've never heard of them, look them up. Alex, you picked Aaron Becker. Tell us about Mm -hmm. his illustrations.
2: This book Journey really broke the mold where it is a children's book without words, um, kind of as a rebuff of that one stand-up comedian who did a children's book without pictures, which I felt as a personal attack. Um, but in this, it made such a beautiful sense of exploration of the character just page after page using a magic crayon to explore these landscapes further. And it would fall so flat if it was just the figures and just the characters. Instead, it's this amazing, magical world they open up.
1: And I can't believe that people constantly ask me, well, why do I need a background? If I add a background, it's gonna mess up the figures. And if I add a color back there, it's gotta be white, otherwise. I'm like, how can you look at a landscape like this and tell me you don't even wanna try? Deep, is there a reason why some people are just so stubborn about dipping into landscapes?
0: I think it's because people forget the power that landscapes can hold and how they can make people feel. Like Ginger Cell just wrote, I want to live in these landscapes. I think a lot of times people think that characters and figures are what creates that emotion or makes you feel something or makes you feel like you want to be something or be in something. And they forget the power that space and these landscapes can, can create, which is amazing. Comics.
1: A lot of people, I think, don't think about landscape. When they think about comics, they think about, oh, action and what are the people doing? And, and yes, that is a lot of comics, but I just love these luscious landscapes by Tilly Walden. And Alex, this is not your typical comic book. Why would you say that?
2: I think comic books, again, we think of as very simple. It's panels, it's characters, it's speech bubbles. With all of that, there's no room for a landscape. There's no room for an environment. But this really challenges how much you can include in those small panels.
1: And wow, some of the manga Mm
0: -hmm.
1: environments are incredible. So many of them are way better than a lot of the pen and ink stuff that I see in children's books. They're very atmospheric. And you would never think that about a pen drawing. Deep D, why do these almost feel painterly, even though they're pen drawings?
0: I think it's because how present the marks are, just like... I really feel like I can see the artist's hand in all of these. Like they're just, there's just so much motion and emotion conveyed through all of the marks that are made. You really feel immersed in that sense. Ceramics, Alex, doesn't this seem a little weird? Why are we talking about ceramics when we're talking
1: about (laughs) landscape? They're all over. Yeah. So many ceramics. And it's extraordinary
2: a little behind the curtain when the three of us were talking about this stream, it became landscapes. Well, there's those things in museums. And then it was like unraveling a sweater. Like, wow, there's movies, there's comics, there's video games, there's ceramics, there's everything. And it's remarkable how much these works of pottery convey space and depth using the same techniques.
1: This one even is a panel of tiles. I mean, there's a whole (laughs) history of, ceramic tiles that are created throughout the world. But deep deep these are interesting because they're on 3D forms. And so how do you think that changes our perception of the landscape?
0: I almost feel like these are so kind of indicative of who the artist is in what time period and the landscapes really lend themselves to that. But they're also these like tactile objects that in theory you could touch and move around. Um, so I think that's really interesting too. It's not really a space that you're looking at on a 2D form. It's almost like a space that you can pick up and hold and interact with, um, which I think is a really special way of interacting with something.
1: Also, unlike a painting which has corners and an edge, these landscapes don't really end. They just keep flowing throughout the entire circumference of the vase. And that also changes our perception as well. And so next time you're at a museum and you wanna see landscapes, to the ceramic section because there's a lot of beautiful (laughs) painting for example alex this is just blue ink glaze whatever they're using but the effects are so full of depth
2: oh yeah and excuse me it's really remarkable i'm thinking there was just a comment made that by seven angelic about i started thinking of ceramic as a 3d landscape and I think they factor that into this where there's not just depth within the image itself, but also the depth of the object as well.
1: J.R. Grimm is asking, is there a difference between landscapes and backgrounds? What's your take, Deep deal on that?
0: I think for me, what, what makes something a landscape is the interaction of nature or, or the incorporation of nature and the land itself. Um, a background could be where i'm sitting right now i would not say that this is exactly a landscape or it could be a little bit more abstract and um just colors or something like that but for for me personally when i think of landscapes i really do think of like the outdoors and um the the land itself being involved in some sense um do you have any thoughts on that alex
2: i really like that of landscape being about the land i think i would agree with that i think for me since It's so story-driven. I feel like landscape, that is the main character. That is the subject. Whereas something that's a background is like, oh, no, we want your eye to go somewhere else in this painting.
1: Mm -hmm. Let's talk about board games. Who here still plays board games? (laughs) I'm very curious (laughs) what percentage of our audience has played a brick-and-mortar board game recently. I played so many with my kids when they were younger. And board games are so fun because some of them are just really complicated, like this one. There was a board game my kids got, and it was so complicated. I was like, I don't have the headspace to learn this board game. This just hurts my head, which is why it's really fun, Deep Dee, that you picked Candyland. <laughs>
0: I love Candyland as soon as I thought of board games I was just like oh my gosh Candyland the word land is even in it um what a cool landscape like it's pulling from all the ideas of what a landscape are it's using depth and like you know but I think board games are so interesting because you're literally like confined to this space that's physically in front of you but are traveling and and you know moving forward in a sense and and achieving things. So the use of landscapes in Candyland is so exciting because it's like you get to Princess Lolly and then you get to Peppermint Forest. And um, that's just so exciting.
1: Well, we also have the fine art version of Candyland, which is Will Cotton. He's a contemporary <laughs> New York City artist. And this dude is committed He made all these cakes and setups to paint from. Here he is creating this giant model of a cake, and he basically takes macaroons and all kinds of meringues and things like that, but he constructs them so they appear to be like a landscape. So Alex, why does this not read as a still life of baked goods? It really does have a landscape feeling but what is he doing as a painter that makes that happen
2: I think it's all about how he's framing it where there is no background trays or room to be found this is all we're seeing and I really I would be surprised if he didn't if he could come on this stream now (laughs) I feel like he would say that was something he intentionally thought about of how to turn our minds to stop viewing it as a still life and start viewing it as a landscape
1: And so really you don't need to have trees to have a landscape in some ways a landscape can be more of a symbol of space that's another way to think about it i mean some people might say oh if it's a landscape it has to have nature in it but i think we're seeing here that it can have a broader definition i don't think there's any clear-cut definition i think it's just up to you how you want to interpret it but it is interesting to think oh yeah Meringues. Those could be (laughs) landscapes if you frame it the right way. Mm -hmm. And we're going to go back to our history. And everybody did landscapes left and right. (laughs) So Deep D, why do you think or maybe you don't think Rembrandt's landscapes maybe stick out against the stereotypical old landscape?
0: I think it has a lot to do with Rembrandt's mark making, but also something that Alex had said earlier about like the landscape really being the character um, and the story of the images. I think that really shows in these images this kind of like the power and um, the impact that these landscapes have come. And a lot of that I think has to do with, you know, the composition and the technique um, and the way that they're presented to us. But you can really see that they're not just like, oh, I just sat down here and painted, drew this random thing. It, it really has some meaning behind it. Well,
1: Alex, it's no secret that Rembrandt had exceptional techniques and Neil, these are etchings, So they're prints, they're not pencil drawings. How do you explain, Alex, why this part of the landscape is so lush and then he does this on the right hand side? <laughs> like, what's going on here?
2: I mean, that's a wild because I don't know about you all, but when I hear Rembrandt, I typically think like, oh yeah, like super high rendered top to bottom. But every time you look at one of the pieces, those little parts that you pointed out are very modern. They're just quick, one mark, all gestural. And then looking at the areas where, oh, I'm really going to focus on the detail here. And like you was saying, it's that diversity in mark making that makes it really exciting to wander through this landscape.
1: And this is by a self-taught artist, Henry Darger. And I think these are so weird. I, I don't know what is happening. It, it's absolute chaos. And they're creepy. Why do you think, deep, deep you can have a painting that's got <laughs> such bright
0: pink and yellow inside they're so weird i think that they are weird because they look like they could be children's book illustrations but then they have this like horrific side to them where like scary things are happening these feel like what my dreams look like (laughs) like they're like cute at first and then everything goes wrong
1: And we also have this artist as well, who, as we were saying, conveys a very specific place. This is definitely not Japan. I mean, you can tell that it's the West in the United States. Mm -hmm. And the brushwork is so expressive, Alex. It's not realistic looking, but why do you think the brushwork contributes to the landscape?
2: I think for this one, the brushwork is trying to convey a sense of the emotion that's felt by being there. I mean, these works really respond to me because growing up in Arizona, where I, I've seen a million and one paintings of Arizona, but then I see these, I'm like, yeah, that's what it's like. <laughs> Even though it's not a photorealistic version, it's, that's the feel that you get.
1: Mm. Murals. I don't know how anybody is a muralist. Because basically, you just do the paintings everybody else is doing, except they're 20 feet wide. (laughs) And it's really fun because murals are on site, and they really do become the landscape of the city. A lot of murals really do define the neighborhood. And it's been really fun to see artists like Lady Pink, who really, I don't know, somehow injected herself into an extremely male-dominated part of the art role. There's Banksy and all those guys. And so it's really nice to see a female be part of that scene. And Deep, do you notice murals when you're walking around the city?
0: Oh, yeah. There are some parts of Brooklyn, especially, where murals are a huge part and like a tourist attraction. If you're ever in Bushwick, um, the Jefferson Street L stop, there are some incredible murals there. Um, but yeah, I, I was really paying attention to what you said about the murals being a part of the landscape. Like, I think that's a really cool way of thinking about murals and landscapes is it's almost like bringing a landscape into an image.
1: I think you froze for a sec, Deep. deep.
0: Oh, sorry, am I back? That's okay. You're back back now.
1: Okay. Let's take (laughs) a look at Aurora, I don't know how to pronounce this name, Reyes Flores. She was one of the Mexican muralists. Now everybody knows about, oh, Diego Rivera and Orozco and David, I don't know how to say his last name, Siqueiros, anyway. And then I find her, I'm like, dude, you're just as good as all those other guys. I mean, you're doing essentially very similar visuals. And it kind of makes me mad that I didn't find her until I was researching about muralists to put into this stream. But Mm -hmm. these are very rich and you'll see there's so many figures and yet the landscape still matters. Can you explain why Alex?
2: I think they're really cool to look at works from this era because they're incorporating things from thousands of years ago with hieratic scale and the size of the figures, not quite being realistic, but telling that historical story. And I think that's, Again, like what Deepthi said earlier of, it's about the land and it's about the stories that unfolded here throughout time.
1: Let's talk about textiles, huge fields. (laughs) We're just telling you go out there and (laughs) see what's going on because there are things like these epic tapestries that these are probably 30 feet tall. They're huge. And I just love how luscious they are. Mm look at that landscape everything's just gushing and these are woven which blows my mind and i honestly think that a lot of textile artists they don't get the credit for how hard it is to make this stuff what do you think about that deep d
0: yeah i can't even wrap my head around how these are made i think i've actually seen this in person i think this is in the cloisters in in new york where there are a bunch of these unicorn tapestries but yeah, I, I, it's incredible to see in person because you can actually kind of see the the weaving happening, um, and it, it's, it's beautiful.
1: And then there's certainly textile artists working today. This is Diedrich Brackens. Very different treatment of landscape here, even though it's relatively the same material. So how would you describe the landscape here, Alex?
2: This landscape is wonderful because it's really challenging that question that we addressed earlier of, when is the landscape a background? (laughs) Um, Because the figures are such a compelling part in this, but I love how subtle that landscape is where the blue and purple are so close together, but when you start to really look at them, it's such a magical space that's made with just two simple colors.
1: Yeah, and I think, look at this. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know how to put like one thread through this. I mean, clearly he's had a lot of practice, but I really like his work because I do think there is a history of very detailed, complex textiles. And I just love how simple that horizon is. You have the fence and this very subtle shape of the moon in the upper right-hand corner. Mm -hmm. And you don't see that very often where the image is just a lot more subtle. And then there's Mari Mecco, which is a design company. They make pillows and shower curtains and all kinds of things like that. I mean, maybe your shower curtain has a landscape on it. You just never know, it's everywhere. You just have to take the time to notice it. Deepy, this is your area, animation. And what role would you say backgrounds play, landscapes, in animation?
0: They're so important because I think that in animation, you're really at being asked to immerse yourself into a world. Um, and these landscapes have a huge part in understanding who the character is, um, what you're supposed to feel, the mood, you know, this is uh, Shrek's house in the movie Shrek. And Shrek is an ogre who is like, quote unquote, like gross and disgusting. But you look at their, uh, his, um his home and it's, it's kind of beautiful. And that kind of, alludes to what you're supposed to feel about this character eventually. Um, So I think landscapes are so interesting because they're not the focal point sometimes, but they really have a lot of importance.
1: This is Don Hertzfeld, (laughs) who's a contemporary animator. Why did we pick him? Because some people might look at this and say, it's not a landscape. It totally is.
2: Yeah, it's that difference of intentionally doing nothing. (laughs) Where... This, these animations were made most famous probably in those Pop Tart commercials, um, and they're just so wonderfully bizarre. And look at this is such a good example because look at how much space is made by just the clouds and the hanging figures and balloons. You really get a sense not just for the depth of the sky, but also how high up they are.
1: Also, I think because the landscapes are simple, you can really focus on the animation. I just watched Encanto, and I'm sorry, Encanto fans, my eyes were just bursting. Like There was so much stuff in them. I didn't even know where to look. And I love the simplicity of these Hertzfeld animations because you really see the movement. It's phenomenal. And then there are animated films like Waking Life, and, of course, who here doesn't like a Ghibli landscape? That's like a crime if you don't love My Neighbor Totoro and just the beautiful, magical, luscious backgrounds. And I've watched these movies thousands of times, and I always mm-hmm. notice something new about them. They're that rich and beautiful. Let's talk about movies. And Deep D, as an actress, <laughs> we know you've been on a couple of sets for TV shows and everything. And how would you say backgrounds maybe differ in a live action film versus animation?
0: Well, I think with live action, you're kind of constrained a little bit more um, to what actually exists. I mean, obviously now Planet of the Apes comes up and this is not real. It's, It's a kind of collage, but I think that you're working within a different kind of realm of, um, possibilities, which I think is really interesting. But then also Wizard of Oz is a great example because that's kind of like an animated like matte painting that's brought in. So it's a lot of different ways of approaching it and kind of manipulating. I guess when you're in an animated, purely animated world, your sense of reality and is completely lifted. You know, anything can happen. With live action, there's a lot more like finagling and figuring out how to make that work. Um, and, and a lot of times the background creates that sense of illusion and, and what you or is your baseline for reality?
1: (laughs) Well, I know it's great, all the technology that they have in CG, but Alex, I miss those old movie matte paintings. They're really, truly an art form. This one from Planet of the Apes. What do you think about matte paintings, Alex? They don't really exist anymore.
2: Yeah, it's amazing where it's become such a specialized skill. it's an incredible way to trick and play with space. I think the most famous image I can think of is like in the original Star Wars movies, they had map painters painting all of the little stormtroopers in the uh, in the landing bay. And it, I remember being a kid and seeing that. I was like, what? <laughs> like, It's mind-blowing how you can merge painting and live action in that way.
1: And then a lot of these were actual models that were built and they had all kinds of effects. I guess I'm just an old fart because honestly, I think a lot of these sets from the, ni- the 1970s look better than a lot of the CG stuff that I see today, which again, sort of similar to Encanto, is just so over the top. I'm like, dude, I just need a horizon line. Like, you don't have <laughs> to give me so much all yeah. at once. It's very overwhelming and it's hard to make a good landscape in a film. I think a lot of them look really fake. What about you, Dee?
0: Yeah, I think so too. And I I would agree with the kind of like, I like the older aesthetic a little bit more because it feels like, wow, like look how realistic they accomplished this with such little technology. Like they actually like painted this. Um, And it's kind of nice in that sense to see how accomplished it is, but also like know that the artist's hand is present like right there. Um, Not to say that the artist's hand isn't present with like using computers and stuff, but it's like a different feeling.
1: Alex, can you explain what a matte painting is? Neil was asking.
2: Yeah, basically matte painting originally was a physical painting, just brush painting on there. And using essentially stop motion or selective animation, they would have it put into the back of the scene in very early like cut and paste graphics and technology. Now digital map painting is a very popular medium of doing the same thing, but with digital painting put in behind and filling in what is the green screen.
1: This is one of my favorite <laughs> movie <laughs> backgrounds. You know why? <laughs> this place that they're in, it's supposed to be an alien planet and galaxy quest. It's basically a spoof. Of Star Trek this place really exists this is Goblin Valley it looks exactly like this I've been here twice they didn't touch a thing to make this piece and it's so weird it's one of my favorite places I've ever been it's usually deserted because it's so far it's really really hard to get to and I think the closest hotel is like two hours away or something ridiculous like that. But I know there's a whole tradition of just using landscape, not touching it, no CG, nothing. And there's something beautiful about that, Deepti.
0: Yeah, I think it's a really interesting way of also learning about how context um, can really influence how you interact with the space. Like if all of these little aliens were like groundhogs we would think maybe they was on planet Earth, but they're all little aliens. So we're completely transported to another space. So I think it's a really interesting way of showing that you don't have to do too much to manipulate a landscape into giving your film a different context, which I think is really exciting.
1: This Google slideshow is available. The link is in the YouTube video description below. And if you go to rprof.org, you can access all of the slideshows. From all of our live streams. It's really great to revisit some of the images if you don't want to have to rewatch the entire stream. After this, we are going to be doing a stage session in the Discord. It will be Alex and I. And stage sessions are where you have an opportunity to speak to us on voice. And it's so lovely for us to hear the voices from across the world in our community, we talk about everything. So we would love to see you over there right after the stream ends. There are many ways you can support ArtProf. For example, you can make a one-time donation via PayPal. We have original artwork. A lot of it was created on the live stream in our Etsy shop. All of that goes to support our budget. You can purchase a portfolio critique. Maybe you're an aspiring artist and you want to figure out if your work is industry standard, you're applying to art school because we have these amazing top Patreon supporters who make it possible for us to be here. We have Crosby Morrow is a new supporter and so is Score trust Thank you all. You're all so important, but we're not quite there yet. I'm I'm happy we went up. That's better than the $100 dip that we made about a week ago, which made me like cry. So this, this is better, but we really need to hit this goal and we're still down there. So we need your help. If you have gained something from our content, if we've helped you, this is your way to show your appreciation for what we do, because we need it to keep the lights on. If you want us to never have a paywall, we need this number to go up because otherwise it's not
2: very viable.
1: Art Prof has a podcast. It's available on Spotify and also on iTunes. And subscribe to our channel for more art tutorials, critiques, business tips, and more. Everybody, thank you so much for watching. We'll see you next time. Bye.